Last week, uh, we kicked off our series, our Hebrew series, and said that Jesus is the supreme prophet, priest, and king. We only looked at four verses, which leaves us a lot of verses to cover for the next several weeks. Um, And so we have big chunks of scripture that uh, we'll be listening to. Uh, We talked about how Jesus um, reveals God fully and completely to us, making him the ultimate and supreme prophet, um, the ultimate priest, because he makes purification for our sin uh, as the one time for all time sacrifice and the mediator of that sacrifice. The all-time supreme king, because he stands to inherit the kingdom from the Father forever and ever and share the inheritance with those who trust in him by faith. That throne that will endure forever that scripture talks about is his, and so he is the supreme prophet, priest, and king. This morning, again, we'll be looking at a lot more verses than just four, and we're going to see how Jesus is superior to the angels. The author of Hebrews gives us several reasons why Christ is above the angels, um, but we'll also mention how Jesus emptied himself and submitted himself to suffering on our behalf. Uh, What do we know about angels? Do they float around on clouds playing harps all day like I used to see in cartoons growing up? Do they swoop down and help us win baseball games like angels in the outfield? That's probably after some of your time, before some of your time. Do we turn into angels when we die if we're Christians? Do we get wings and become angels? Do angels have to earn their wings? Do we each have our own personal guardian angel? Are there male and female angels? Now, we're not going to answer all of those questions. We may not answer any of those questions this morning. But I just want you to consider what you've heard, what you assume, what we speculate on, and what you actually know about angels as we read from Hebrews this morning. Uh, So again, buckle up, follow along. The words will be on the screen. This is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and in the heavens, uh, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Chapter 2, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? 
You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell, you of, your, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now that's a lot of scripture, and um, I went back and forth for about 10 seconds on whether I should read that. Um, and I thought, reading scripture is good. Like, it's just one of those things that no one can say, you read too much scripture in church. So it's like, uh, we're going to do that from time to time. Uh, I know it's a lot to sit, and we kind of get lost in it, but that's where the message hopefully comes in and kind of points out and highlights and clarifies things. So the author of Hebrews builds a case for Christ's supremacy over angels by presenting messianic prop- promises from the Psalms. He starts quoting Psalms. He throws in some Isaiah, references to verses that Jesus quoted during his life and his time on earth with us. There's a handful of characteristics here to run down, but what Hebrews, the, the Hebrews were being told and uh, what we're being told through, um, just by way of the vicarious, this message is not just for that audience then, but for God's people for all time, is that Jesus is superior to the angels. And he's superior to the angels as son, king, creator, and savior. These are all identities that Jesus owns that the angels do not. They don't wear any of these hats. They don't fulfill any of these roles. They're incapable of doing these things or being these things. Now, for the record, here's four roles the angels do hold that we see in Scripture. One, they're continuously worshiping and praising and serving God. Two, they communicate God's messages to men. Three, they minister to believers, which we saw in this passage, along with the worship aspect. Four, they are God's agents in the second coming and the final judgment of earth. There's uh, sometimes there's military language to describe the angels, like armies of angels or hosts of angels, right, who can uh, destroy or defend. Uh, we see some scripture that points to that. Uh, we know that the angels were set as guards to guard Eden and keep people out of it. And so uh, they serve the Lord, right, and they do what the Lord has asked them to uh, I think it's interesting also in Scripture that every time, not every time, but almost almost every time angels show up, they're like, don't freak out. So there's something about them, I think, that either they show up in places they're not supposed to be or there's something just visually scary or, or striking about them, 
that makes you say, oh my goodness, what is this? Who are you? Because in the New Testament, every time they show up, they say, don't be afraid. (laughs) Uh, Jesus never says that, right? And so there's some weird visual something about when Jesus shows up to people, they're like, oh, it's Jesus, right? Uh, But when an angel shows up, they have to say, calm down, don't freak out. And so there's some really cool stuff uh, about angels that we see in Scripture. Uh, they can do some cool stuff. They've been called to do some cool stuff. Uh, pretty, they have some neat roles that we see, some amazing things uh, about what they uh, are assigned to do that we can't do and that we're not assigned to do as humans. And yet they're still far inferior to Jesus. We're not to worship angels, and angels don't receive worship. But we just read that the angels worship Jesus. It's only Jesus to whom the Father said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That word begotten is a weird word. We don't use that usually in our everyday language or conversation. But it's theologically significant. So significant that the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, when all these church leaders got together to say, okay, there's a lot of false teaching. There's a lot of, like, this part is kind of sounds true about the gospel, but then it kind of gets over here. And so they have these meetings every so often to say, let's nail down what is, like, these are the non-negotiables. These are the essential beliefs, the core doctrines. Let's make a list. And so that we can say, okay, you hold to this, then you are uh, orthodox in your thinking, you are right in your thinking, these are the non-negotiables, that if you get outside of this, it's a false gospel, it's a false teaching. And so during that meeting, during that Council of Nicaea, they wrote what has come to be known as the Nicene Creed, uh, this statement that is still read today and uh, quoted today in churches around the world. And one of the things that it says is that Jesus is true God from true God, begotten, not made. And so this term begotten tells us Jesus is not a created being, that the Son of God was not created by the Father, that he is begotten of the Father. And so there's a sense of from the Father, and yet he is true God of true God. And so begotten is, again, kind of a weird word, but theologically significant that we need to hold to as Christians to understand that Jesus wasn't created. He's always existed eternally with God the Father and God the Spirit. So it's a crucial belief designating Christ as eternal, begotten of the Father, one with the Father. Um, He has no beginning and no end, just like the Father and just like the Spirit. And the Father never calls the angels sons. They have special assignments, but not the distinct relationship that Christ and believers have with God by faith. Not only is Christ superior as son, he's superior as king, God declared that Christ's throne would endure forever, and he is anointed by the Father. We spent some time last week discussing this, this aspect of the kingship of Jesus. The angels aren't on the throne. They don't rule the kingdom. They also rank among God's creation. While Jesus is praised as creator, he laid the foundation of the earth. He was present in creation, that all things are from him and to him and through him. And so Jesus had an active role, or Christ the Son had an active role in creation, The angels we see in Scripture are created. They have not always existed. We read in Hebrews 1-2, or we read in Hebrews 1-2 last week, and we can read in John 1, 1 Corinthians 8, and Colossians 1, which was our call to worship last week, that creation is credited to Christ. Again, all things created through him and for him, and that's not true about the angels. The author is really running up the score on the angels here. And he asks again in verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said? And this time it's, sit at my right hand. The ultimate place of honor for the Son of God. 
The angels weren't invited to the seat, right? It's pretty well known now, I think, that back when Johnny Carson hosted The Tonight Show, he would only invite a comedian over to sit and talk if he was impressed. It was kind of this badge of honor, this sign that you have made it. Usually a comedian would come out and do their jokes, and if Johnny didn't wave them over, they would just go backstage, like that was it. But if they impressed him, made him laugh, whatever, if he liked them, he would wave them over, and that's when they knew, I've made it, and they would come and sit next to Johnny on The Tonight Show, and then they'd get to talk, right? And they'd get to kind of put themselves out there a little more. God the Father, to an infinitely greater degree, has invited the Son to sit at the right hand as this ultimate place of recognition and honor and authority. And the picture of making your enemies a footstool that we see here in Hebrews uh, is, uh, calls on actual historical warfare and victory and defeat. Um, winning and losing kings uh, would experience these things. <clears throat> the defeated would bow down and kiss the feet of the, the victorious king, and uh, the victorious kings would put their feet on the necks of their defeated foes. And so Jesus talks about how, the scripture talks about how the world is Jesus' footstool, right? He has overcome the world. He has conquered it. And so he puts his feet up and rests because he is the true and ultimate victor. The angels are not in this position. Angels serve. They don't rule. Jesus rules and reigns over everything. The angels do get a mention in verse 14. They're designated as the ministering spirits who serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. A salvation that is only possible through Christ. He's not just son, king, and creator. He's also savior. In chapter 2, he's established as the founder of salvation. But our relationship with Jesus goes so far beyond that. He didn't just author and provide for our salvation from afar. He suffered for it and promotes us as heirs through it. This is because Jesus is superior as our suffering brother. Jesus is superior as our suffering brother. The author of Hebrews keeps attributing quotes from the Old Testament to Jesus, a full circle expression of messianic themes from the Old Testament to reinforce who Jesus is, post-ascension. Like, this is where he is, this is what he's doing. We read that the sanctifier, Jesus, and the sanctified believers have one source, or in other words, all are of one. So the Father has saved believers, and we are of the Father, and Jesus, who sanctifies us, is also of the Father. And then another amazing truth, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. This is where more Old Testament tie-ins come into play. First, with a quote from Psalm 22, which Jesus quoted on the cross. This is where, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he cried out on the cross. It comes from Psalm 22. Verse 22 of Psalm 22 is the quote about being brothers. And then there's a reference to trusting in the Lord and the children God has given from Isaiah 8. Now, this is a super cool reference. Uh, I had never studied this before. Isaiah in Isaiah 8 is referring to his own sons, Isaiah's two sons. Uh, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which is not uh, only credited as the longest name or word in the Bible. So that's kind of a fun fact. But it means the spoil speeds, the prey hastes, symbolizing the quick removal of Judah's enemies. And Sher Yeshub, these are the two sons, Maher Shalal Hashbaz and Sher Yeshub, which means a remnant shall return. So Isaiah speaks of his sons, the enemy is removed, and the remnant returns. These are his two sons. 
The enemy is removed. The remnant will return. Sending this prophetic shout out to Judah's future, but also a very strong picture of our salvation, which we now see in Hebrews as Isaiah 8 is referenced. It's tied together with our salvation, the salvation credited to Christ who removes our enemies and redeems a remnant through us. And it's by faith that we become children of God given to the Son. The enemy is removed, the remnant remains, and through Christ, he takes away our enemy, sin and death, and he saves us as a remnant to be redeemed. This salvation that Jesus secured for us, it came by suffering, the humility of humanity, the humility of death, but through his suffering, he won and we gained victory. The angels are brought back into the conversation here in verse 16, clarifying that it wasn't for the angels that Jesus suffered and died. Angels are not to be redeemed through faith in Jesus. Jesus didn't uh, take on an angelhood. He took on humanity. He didn't die for the sins of angels. He died for the sins of men and women, right? Humanity. He took on flesh. I don't know if you've ever been jealous of angels, but Scripture actually says in 1 Peter that they're, it doesn't say jealous, but it says that they long to observe, they long to look into this process of God redeeming and sanctifying humanity because they can't experience that. They have a unique relationship with their creator God, right, in this all-time worship and uh, all the cool things that they get to do as messengers and protectors and all of that stuff, ministering to us. And yet this relationship of going from sinner to saint and being sanctified, redeemed, this salvation, it says in 1 Peter that the angels long to look at this process. They see how God interacts with fallen man and redeems fallen man to sainthood, to co-heirs with Christ. It's not something they can experience. They do not receive worship like Christ, as I mentioned earlier, and they do not experience salvation like us. They are not brothers and sisters of Christ who will share in the eternal riches of God's kingdom as co-heirs with him like we are. The author has set forth a contrast between Christ and the angels and now between us and the angels, but also offers this similarity between us and Christ. So he's like, Christ and angels, different. Angels and people, different. Christ and people, similar. That he is like us in every respect, so that he would be merciful and faithful as our high priest, not making propitiation or appeasing the wrath of God without knowing experientially what it means to be human. Christ didn't take a class on how to save humans and what it means to be human and then say, oh, I've got it, I understand now. This is not someone uh, without kids giving parenting advice or someone who has never been married giving marriage advice or someone who has never been skydiving giving skydiving advice, right? You don't want to be like, oh, so what's it like when you jump out of the plane? Oh, I don't know. I, I've never done it. I, I could just tell you what it's supposed to be like and what other people have told me. That's not Jesus. He came to earth. He took on flesh. And so he knows, he understands intimately because he designed and created us, but he also has walked on this earth, right? He has arms and legs. He got hungry and thirsty. He cried when people died and 
all the things that it means to be human are wrapped up in the person of Jesus so that he can be a high priest who sympathizes and empathizes with us. For the Hebrews, this truth instilled hope and confidence in the face of their trials and suffering. That their Jesus, their Savior, has been tempted and tried like them. And if you've surrendered your life in faith to Christ, it should serve to give you hope and confidence as well. We can't ever look up to the heavens and say, Jesus, you don't get it. You don't understand what I'm going through. You've never been tempted like I have. You've never um, gone through the tragedy or experienced things that I've experienced. Jesus has. He has. And so in saving us and in being fully human and then being glorified as fully human, guess what? If we're in Christ, everything it means to be human will be glorified in us, fully redeemed, fully glorified. And then we get to live forever in, I, that, that's a whole other sermon, the new earth waiting for us to inhabit and enjoy forever. We talk about enjoying the grace of God. It's only joy and worship for all eternity. We, you know, spoiler alert, I said we wouldn't answer all the questions. We don't turn into angels. We don't get wings. We don't sit on a clouds and play harps. What a terrible eternity that would be anyway. <clears throat> we get to inherit a physical new earth that's perfect, not marred by sin, not broken by sin. We get to experience it as glorified physical humans who are not broken, don't experience disease or sadness or death or loss. And we get to enjoy that forever. And it's all great because we, we know that the pleasure of this world would not satisfy us anyway, but it's all great because Jesus is there. It's the presence of God and then the bonus of perfect creation for all eternity. That's what awaits us. And so Jesus took on humanity so that he could say, listen, I'm, going, I'm all in. I know what it means to be human. I know what it means to lose, to hurt, to suffer. I get it. And I'm going to redeem all of it. If you turn to me in faith, you can experience that as well. This Jesus, who is superior as son, king, creator, and savior, he suffered like us and for us, and he calls us his own. Let's pray. God, thank you for this truth. I know um, there may still be a lot of questions about angels floating around out there, and uh, we can maybe look at those another time. But God, I thank you for uh, just setting, uh, setting the record straight that uh, while angels are cool, mysterious, whatever, um, they are inferior to Christ. That Christ is far above and superior, and that you have uh, invited us into a relationship that is uh, unique and different than the relationship they get to experience with you as well. And God, I pray that uh, those who are here this morning who heard these words and heard this truth, God would just have more affection for you, more appreciation for the fact that you uh, are not a savior who just sent a plan, who just executed a plan from afar and saved us without getting your hands dirty, but that Jesus, you came and you lived, you walked, you breathed, you ate, you drank, you slept, you cried, you laughed, that Jesus, you took on flesh to know what it means to be fully human. 
And that in being glorified, it means that everything it means to be human will be glorified in us. So Jesus, thank you for suffering on our behalf, for extending salvation, that we might spend eternity with you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.